Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to another episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm joined tonight with my friends Randy and Jim. Jim is going to be teaching in a couple of weeks on John chapters 14 to 17. So tonight we are hoping to look at John chapter 14 and perhaps chapter 15 if we get there. So guys, um, let's just talk a little bit about the context. Um this is uh, these chapters are really, really powerful. It's some of the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he goes to the cross. But I know that right before this, um, they had their last supper. And uh, so so and and also the other big event is that Jesus says that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And. It turns out, identifies, Judas is identified as that disciple, and then he ends up leaving the room, and then we're kind of like, uh, the next thing that happens is John chapter 14. What else about, what else about the context stands out to you guys? Well, I think it's kind of important, like you said, it's uh, to, that uh, all this happens in the last week of Jesus's life before his uh, death on the cross. So the uh, triumphal re-entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, as we call it. That's in John chapter 12. And this is like you were just saying, they just had the the Last Supper. And just because of the events you were talking about, Greg, there's some real tension in the air. Um, you know, we, it's this podcast, we kind of do this where we hop around and kind of like <laughs> passages. We do these select passages that kind of that we're teaching on, that we're focusing on. It's um uh not like we start right at the beginning of John and just plow right through it, but it's such a wonderful gospel. And I've been studying it recently. The and you can just feel uh the love that comes through the book of John and how um there's a reason why if you're talking to people about their faith, like if someone's listening to this podcast and maybe they're considering Christianity, they're not sure they stumbled on the gospel addict, maybe did the wrong search and they're listening to this now and they're saying, well, I'm, they already know it's about Christianity. If you're exploring Christianity, thinking about Christianity, what is it to be a Christian? The book of John is a great place to start. That Just is so true. That is so true. You know, one of the, one of the reasons I love the book of John is because you see Jesus interacting with individuals. Yeah. The way he in, in, interacts with you know, the religious people on an individual, you know, he has a personal conversation with Nicodemus. He has a personal conversation with the woman at the well, who is, um, you know, kind of an outcast, just all these personal encounters and conversations. And it just, it's just great. Randy, yeah. what do you, what do you like about the gospel, John? Well, you know, I love the gospel of John and I think John is so unique because it, um, it's very theological. There's some themes in John, like light, um, the I am statements that are in John. He uses the word life, love, and light throughout the entire book. And um, I love that. In fact, if you go into first, second, and third John, he continues those illustrations of light, love, and life. And so, yeah, um, 
I love honestly one of the main things I love about the way book of John is the way John describes himself, the one in whom Jesus loved. And it's so funny because mm. I used to think about that because he would say that, you know, the one whom he loved beat Peter to the tomb. Like he was always kind of, I always thought he was comparing himself to Peter when I was younger. And I used to think, wow, you know, he doesn't want to say his name, but at the same time, he's letting everybody know Jesus loved me the most. And then I started thinking about it and I said, it's not in comparison. It's the definition of himself. How he defines himself is one loved by Jesus. Oh, wow. And I just thought, you know what? That is so like, that's how we should define ourselves, isn't it? Amen. Amen. That we are loved by Jesus. And so um, you asked me, John, that, that book has changed my life. That little thought uh, changed my life. Instead of me, my goal for life used to be when I was younger, out of college, was relentlessly loved Christ. And when I read this and started thinking about it, my goal for life was, uh, if I wanted to put on my tombstone someday, was relentlessly loved by Christ. That it always goes back to him, doesn't it, Greg? I like that. That's so, and, and you know, how we identify ourselves, where we find our identity is so important. Um, you know, even if, if I identify as a Christian worker, if that's my identity, then it's still, it's still not really um, the best identity, uh, you know, but for John to say he was the the one who who Jesus loved, I mean that that is really powerful. Um, so here's here's something just in the immediate context that I think is just also profound. In John chapter thirteen, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, yeah. and for us, when we read that, it's because we live in the modern day and we don't have dirty feet. We have shoes. We have socks. It's, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around what, what Jesus did there. Um, but the thing, that, the thing that stands out to me, guys, is that Jesus washed even Judas's feet, knowing mm. that just a few minutes after this, that Judas was going to be identified and he was going to leave the room and betray him. And, you know, it, it, the, the Bible would still be amazing if Jesus didn't wash Judas's feet, like, but the fact that he washed Judas's feet along with the other 11 is just kind of profound. Yeah. It's kind of by choice too, isn't it, Greg? Because he easily could have done the, you know, the, that's in the, that's in the first part of 13. And then later in chapter 13, he has the thing where he says, the one who dips the bread is the one who's going to betray me and Judas. He could have done that first and said, great. Well, now that Judas is gone, let me, wash all your feet but it's you're right i never thought about that it's exactly backwards for some reason it you know he chose um and he lets us know that he washed even judas's feet yeah which is i i, I just think that is just profound so anyway the setting of this chapter 14 is the disciples are troubled i mean um they know that this is this is an unusual something strange is happening um you know so that's why i think the words at the beginning of john chapter 14 and why don't we just dive in and start discussing this um you know randy do you have the text in front of you yes i do greg do you want to you want to read the first uh 
you know, couple paragraphs, like sure. one to 14, maybe. What translation would you like? Um, whichever one you pick. I'm in All the right. e I'm in the ESV tonight, Greg. What are you reading? Yeah, I'm an ESV too. Okay. <laughs> you don't have. I don't ESV. have that one from me, but the, I I will. I was gonna say I have eight in front of me, but not that one. I'm gonna read the New American Standard today, right now. Okay. Great. Do not let your hearts, um, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me, for in my Father's house are many dwelling uh, places. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. Um, how do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Mm. It's verses one to five. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good one start. One through six. I'm sorry, one through six. I mean, let's just start with verse one there. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's, uh, um, you know, the, the disciples had reason to be troubled. Jesus had told him that one of them was a traitor. Um, and that all of them would deny him. And that he would leave them that night. All this would legitimately trouble the disciples. Yet Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I think one of the things that strikes me is Jesus never promised us a life without trouble. But he did promise that we could have an untroubled heart. Even in the midst of trouble. And I think that's that's one of the one of the great things about being a follower of Jesus is that you know your things can be there can be all kinds of trouble around you, but you could still have peace in your heart. Um, it's really great. Have you found that to be true in your own life, Craig? Have you feel that? Yeah, on certain occasions, I definitely. I mean, I I love. It reminds me of Philippians chapter four, where he talks about you can have the peace that surpasses all understanding. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just evidence that God is in your life. And I, you know, of course, there's times when my heart is troubled, but, you know, I can pray and I can, and I can find myself, you know, all of a sudden have peace in the midst of, whatever's troubling me and that's the way i want to live my life you know i i, I couldn't agree more I, I think it's the astonishing offer of christianity to help you with your anxiety to give you peace and i i feel like personally i'm too too much whipsawed by my circumstances you know you live in your circumstances it's hard to rise above i don't take that offer enough but the offer is out there i don't think the other religions are really offering they're saying strive without ceasing climb the ladder achieve righteousness or you know holiness according to whatever the precepts of that religion are but christianity says let not your hearts be troubled it's, the thought is echoed later in the, in the same chapter we're not there yet but in 1427 it's a famous verse we'll, and we'll get to it in a few minutes but 
read it now. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So just like an echo of the way it starts coming up again, another kind of famous verse. But I don't take the offer as much as I should. I let my, I let my heart get troubled and fearful. Yeah. Randy, any any thoughts? Well, I, I do, th you know, um, I think as followers of Christ, Jesus is promising a couple of things, that everything changed for the disciples during the resurrection, and then um, when the Spirit came at Pentecost, and everything changed. The game was now changed for everybody. Um, I think it's interesting that when we really understand who Jesus is, if we sit back on that, and I mean, I think there's times that my heart is troubled, but he promises us peace. And I think if you think about it, if we're persecuted, he promises us rewards in heaven. If we're killed, we get to be with Jesus. If we're not killed, we get to love and serve him here. Like, it's a win, 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 win. Like there's, we don't lose in any scenario. Right. It doesn't mean that we don't get freaked out. But the reality is, is if I truly believe that, it changes everything. And just after that, what does Jesus say? Trust me. And I'm thinking, this is the guy they saw cast out demons and feed 5,000 at one time and heal the leper. And he's looking at them and saying, hey, don't worry. Trust me. Like, I've got you. I've got your best interest. So I, I think that's so um, he's saying not to worry. And then he's saying, hey, look, trust me. If we trust him, then we don't worry, I think. Hmm. So here's so, a here's a question. Do you think that do you think their hearts were troubled already? Or is he is he basically saying, hey, in a couple hours, man, things are going to get really, really bad. <laughs> and you you may not be you know maybe they weren't that troubled at this point maybe they were just like i don't know where judas went but um he's he left um maybe this is like jesus is saying hey guys i'm not gonna you know he's preparing them for that future what do you think randy well two thoughts you guys one they knew this political situation. They knew the religious leaders were coming after him. If you remember when Jesus and Thomas are waiting uh, to go raise Lazarus and you go to Bethany and Thomas looks and says, okay, let us go and die with him. Like they know that he's been, he's been stirring up a hornet's nest for a long time. So when Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, I think they knew that th th there's issues here, right? And so I think they were troubled about what's going to happen politically. These religious leaders. Second, Jesus keeps talking about his demise, like uh, like the temple, tear this temple down. And three days later, I'm going to, uh, you know, that like Jonah in the belly of the whale. He says over and over in different ways that he's, uh, I'm he's telling him, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to be here. And so I think for them, um, yeah, I think the political situation and some of the teaching that Jesus has had, I think they are a little worried. That's good. Well, and then he goes on and says, in my father's house are many rooms. Um, if it were not so, I would have 
I would have told you, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you may be where I am. What do you think about that? What, you know, why is he bring up this whole idea of the, the, the future and, you know, that's a, that's a, a challenging one. Well, your hope for the future affects how you live right now, right? Where you think it's all going to end up, where you think it's going. That's the ultimate piece that comes to saying, the Randy was saying before, it's a win-win situation. I'm going to be with him no matter what happens. He said, oh, you're going to be with me forever. So there's really nothing you need to worry about. So lots of, lots of things have been said about these verses, about the rooms being mansions and, um, yeah, this one says rooms. Is there like another parallel passage where it says, I'm going to prepare a mansion for you? Because, you know, remember there, remember there was that old Christian song, Mansion Builder? I used to love that. Um, <laughs> second chapter of Acts, I've got a mansion builder. Uh, it was a great song, great Christian band from the 70s. But but that idea, like, oh, God's preparing mansions for us. But you're right, this one says rooms. Maybe there's a parallel passage. Dwellings. It's also dwellings. Yeah. But does I think- it? We just read into it. Oh, I, I, when he says room, I like to think of it as a mansion. We just like reading ourselves into it somehow. And I, I think the main point, though, is that there's room in heaven for all of us. Like, oh, that's true. There's room, like wherever it is and what it looks like, there's room for us. Um, but I, I was going to say, this is kind of a wild thought. So hang with me if you can for just a second. But right. throughout scripture, Jesus makes a covenant. And um so like with Abraham, when Abraham, um, he makes a coming with Abraham, Abraham, fall, he makes Abraham fall asleep and God walks in between the two animals. They would take an animal, cut it in half. Right. And he would make this covenant. And what that says is, may it be to me as this animal, if this covenant is broken. So he doesn't even allow man to go in. He's saying, I'm going to be the one that pays the penalty if this covenant is broken. Right. So that's all the way back with Abraham. Then he um, he's telling them that he's going to prepare a place for him. And he talks about them in, in other places, the, the maids that are waiting, uh, handmaids waiting and stuff. This is, this is, I think, verbiage of a wedding. And so what would happen is when the father of the groom and the groom would go meet with the, groom, the, the bride's father, and they would strike a deal of what the dowry is going to be. And that once that was struck, they would then pay the dowry. Once the dowry was paid, the bride actually belonged to the, the groom, but he would then leave and go prepare a place for them to live. And so no one knew how long that was going to take. It's like the bridesmaids waiting for the return. The, the bride would prepare the wedding and be getting the wedding. And, and he may get his friends and they said he may prepare a house on his father's land or put an addition off the back of his father's house but he was preparing a place for them to live. And then he would come back and he would take his bride to be with him. And I'm like, this whole passage is so similar to that, that his bride, Jesus is going to come back and take his bride and he's already prepared the place for her. And I, I think I, I'm, I'm looking at a couple of commentaries and they don't mention that, but I remember sitting in a seminary class and being taught that this was a similar language that Jesus is coming to get his bride and um, he's going to, he's going to take his bride to be back, to be with him where he is at. Mm. That's awesome. And, you know, I, I, as I'm doing some research here, I, in the Greek 
you know, it is appropriate to, to interpret that as mansions. Oh, really? The, the Greek word. Um, hey, Randy, you've got a parallel Bible in front of you. What does the King James say? For John 14, verse 2. Uh, Randy, I think you, you might be unmuted. muted. I think you're, you're still muted, Brandy. That's embarrassing. Sorry. The King James says mansions in um, the New American. It says dwellings in the New International. Um, my father's house are many rooms. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we'll just think of just taking uh, think about this thought in light of God's nature. It's better to translate it mansions because whatever dwelling place God has for us in heaven, it will be as glorious as a mansion. That makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, it'll, probably, agree with that. it'll probably even be better than a mansion. Right. Like something, something, something so much better than the best housing situation we can think of on earth. Right. So I've had a chance to stay in a couple of castles in Scotland. And if it's just a room in the castle, if you'd have seen them, like, I'm, I'm okay with that. They were unbelievable how beautiful it was and how nice it was. But again, I think I go back to the point that the point, though, is whether it's a massive mansion or I get to have a room in what God's house is like. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine what that's like? I, it, the whole point is there's room for us that God's got. a He's got it. He's got us a place for us and he's ready for us. And so. I think to me, if it's a room or a massive mansion, it's either way, it's okay. We get to be with him. Yeah. And I like it. I like where in verse three, he says, and if I go prepare a place for you, the that, that whole thing, I go. When Jesus is saying, I go, it's saying he's taking the initiative. He's going to the cross. He's choosing this. He's choosing this route. Because he knows it's the only route uh, for him to bring us to be with him. And it, it just shows his incredible courage at this point that he's he's choosing this path um, to 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 the cross, you know? Yeah, of his own volition. But he does it so that we can be with him because he says, like you just said, uh, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So it doesn't matter if it's a mansion or a hole in the ground, we're going to be with him. And that's and that's the thing. That's the thing that makes it glorious, right? That's what makes it even better than a mansion is that he will be with us. Right. Right. So it's not about the mansion. It's not about what that dwelling place looks like. It's the fact that he's there. That's right. That's right. Hey guys, so, let's, let's shift gears and go to verse five because it's such a famous verse. I just want to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, go ahead. And, uh, yeah, so then it moves on and Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where, where you are going. So how can we know the way? And then Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You want to stop there? Or keep going. 
No, let's, let's just talk about that verse for a little bit because it's so poignant. It's so such a big verse in the Christian life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, um, I think that I heard someone say that there were philosophers at the time that would try to say, let me just teach you the way. I'm going to teach you my philosophy. Here's the way. I'm going to teach you the truth so that you can have life. And Jesus was doing this as kind of a play on words that would have been familiar to them because that was a common... I, I'm not sure this is true, but I, hear, I remember hearing someone talk about this once, that that was kind of a common philosophical refrain. I have words of you know, truth. I'm going to show you the way so that you can have life. And Jesus comes by and says, I, it turns it on its head. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm everything. You know, yeah. and it, there's, to, you know, to be a Christian, you say there's no, there is no other way. You are the way and there's no other truth, right? You are the truth. You are my life. Like what's that verse? Is Colossians? Colossians 3, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Christ is our life, right? Christ, our life. You know, so, yeah, no, it's like, so he he is the way. There's no other way. He's the right total truth, not one truth among many. He is the truth, and he is my life. But I just want to know if there's any other thoughts on that verse, because it's it's, got to be one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. So, Two thoughts. One, um, where Jesus says, um, I am. And uh, when he says in the beginning, believe, trust, or have faith in me and have faith in my father. In both of these cases, I think Jesus is referring to his deity. Mm. I remember once watching a, a History Channel TV show on, on Jesus. And the one, one theologian said, Jesus never claimed deity. And I literally threw my pillow at the TV at the moment. I was like, so mad. I was like, he did all over. How can you miss it? He's saying, believe in God and believe in me. He's comparing himself to God. And he forgave sins. He, for, uh, he You know, the lowering of the paralytic. But here he says, I am. And then I am refers back to, I believe, to the great I am, the calling of Moses. And he said, who shall I say sent me? Tell him I am sent you. And so eight times in the book of John, Jesus says, I am. I don't think the religious leaders missed it. I think we miss it times, but I think they were angry every time they heard it. I think they caught what he's referring back to. So one, I think this, here's the, again, the deity of Christ. Um, and I think people sometimes say to Christians, how can you Christians be so egotistical or so, um, you're not inclusive in any way. Right. So narrow-minded. And, you know, it's not our words. Jesus is the one that makes the claim. I'm not saying there's nothing in me that's, uh, I, have, I have nothing to do with this. But right. Jesus is making the claim that he is the way. So either he is or he's not. I mean, either well, he's telling the truth or he's lying. Right. And so, or he's crazy. And, and so, yeah, how, you can't explain away the miracles, the resurrection. I mean, so I guess I just want to say is that when people talk about how Christians, um, you know, we, we just uh, don't have compassion or we're, um, we're arrogant. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, narrow-minded. Yeah, we're narrow-minded. I think it this isn't, this is the teaching of Jesus himself that he was the way God provided a way to heaven because of our sin. And he's it. Mm. So, well, anyways, it takes, 
No, it's great, Rand. It takes away the option of him. People saying, well, he's just a nice teacher, love and peace. He claimed to be the only way to God. It's not like some really, he was a really great professor. He's a good teacher. He really gave us words of love and peace. Like this ain't words of love and peace. This is pretty, there are lots of places around this too, as we're reading it, where he says, you obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commands. You know, you can't imagine talking about, oh, I had this great professor in college. He was so great. And he told me I had to obey all his commands. And that's not a good professor. It was an egomaniac, right? It's uh, it's the liar, lunatic, or lord kind of uh, argument. Mm. But I want to keep talking about it because this uh, this exclusivity claim is such a so offensive to modern people. But this is like a philosophical. So right, you mean right there? Some agree and said, "You're right. I get it. He's not just a teacher of peace. He's claiming to be have exclusive truth, and that offends me." So philosophically, they can stop right there. But then the whole next passage, you're talking about Philip, we're going to get to in a minute, and then the Holy Spirit, and then and even more so in John 15, it's all about relationship with Christ and knowing him personally. Um, and you know, people can stop here, well, just to kind of jump ahead of that thought, people can stop and short circuit and say, well, look, this exclusive thing is so offensive, I can't buy it, this. And, and Jesus is making that claim, so there's no way around that. But... Um, but what he's really saying, if you read all of it, is saying, you need to know me. Who do, who do people say that I am? That's the primary question. Do you believe in me? Right? Do you, um, you got to meet Jesus and know him. And then, and then think about these philosophical objections. But people stop kind of right here and say, oh, this is just too offensive. It's too exclusive. I can't buy it. Just, just to be clear on that, Jesus didn't say that he would show us a way. Right. He said he is the way. Right. And he didn't promise to teach us a truth. He said he is the truth. And he didn't right. offer us secrets to life. He said that he is the life. So what does that mean to you, Greg? Because that, that you're getting right to the heart of the gospel. Well, it's it's life-changing. If right. you really understand it, it is. It's the it's part of the essence of the gospel, and it's the thing that a lot of people find offensive because it's the exclusivity of the, the Christian offer, faith. But the offer is so incredible because he says, he, he could say, he say, I could come to this and say, I don't want someone to be the way. I just, Jesus, give me some tips for a living. I can do this, right? Show me the way and I'll be fine. I need a self-help book. I need some inspiration and just show me that Jesus says, you're never, you, 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 you're a complete moral failure. You can't do this. I did it all for you. I am the way. I'm not just showing you the way. And if he was a teacher of love and, love and peace, there would be such despair because I couldn't do it. I couldn't follow it. I, if he said, well, just be like Jesus. Be the servant on the mountain. Just do it all. Like, I can't. That's the point. But he did it for me in my place. He is the way. He's not showing me the way. He is the way. And that's, he's not my, just my, he is my teacher. Yes. But he's my redeemer. Right. That's the, that's what keeps us going this gospel that's the theme of the gospel addict podcast right it's the yeah. gospel that propels you through the whole christian life realizing he is the way he did it all for me and that's an exclusive truth claim but it's a beautiful exclusive truth claim because nothing else every back up every other philosophy is exclusive as well even the philosophy that says it's ridiculous for you christians to claim exclusivity no religion should claim exclusivity everyone should be open minded those are all spiritual truth claims right Therefore, it's a particular Western kind of mindset that says this is the way spiritual reality works, and it's offensive to me if you don't comply. 
but it's a very, it's an assertion of a truth claim with no basis in science or anything like that. It's just a truth claim. And it's, yeah. it's an exclusive one. You Christians are bad because you're not all open-minded like I am. And it's, uh, so yes, this is exclusive, but every system of thought is exclusive. But this, this system of thought says, its exclusivity says someone paid the price completely for you and gives it to you for free, right? And every other, every other exclusive, train, exclusive train, uh, truth claim makes you work for it. So mm. anyway, so, but the, 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 I'm sure there are many, many books written about just this one verse, right? Because it's, it's packed. It's so packed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.